All right, well, my name is Ben, and I have the honor of serving here as the lead pastor at Downtown Community Church. And I just want to say we're excited that everybody's here. I think I got one little woo. Um, yeah, we'll work on it again. Uh, but, man, I'm excited everybody's here. I know there's a lot of places you could be. Specifically, you could be curled up on your in your bed um, under a warm, heated blanket with a hoodie on, right? Like, that just sounds like heaven. Uh, but, man, you chose to be here with us, and so we just want to say, I want to say that I am so thankful that you chose to be here with us. And every week you show up. So many of you are, are young, and uh, I just think, man, it's, it's so incredible that so many of you um, decide on your own free will and volition to show up and go to church. And so um, we're honored by your presence, and uh, we're praying and hoping that as we're spending our time together, um, God continually speaks to each one of us. So let's spend a second in prayer and just that God would kind of posture our hearts in a way to hear from him. So Jesus, we ask and we pray that you would speak directly to each one of us. We know that you are in heaven and you can do all things. And so God, we just pray that your will would be to speak to us. For the people who are here who have been following you faithfully for a long time, I pray that you would Help to challenge, grow, encourage, correct us to be more like you. And for those of us who walked in for the first time in a long time, not really sure if you're there, not really sure if you exist, not really sure where we are in our journey, on our relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that you would speak individually to each one of us, regardless of where we are in our relationship with you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in this series, Counterfeit Habits, and the idea behind it is a little bit different than maybe you've heard habits talked about before, uh, but it, it basically says, and the idea of a counterfeit habit is a counterfeit habit is a habit, usually a good habit, that takes the place of the best habit or the better habit or the real habit that we should or we ought to have. Um, and the problem with a counterfeit habit is a counterfeit habit, um, it's enough like the real habit to not make you feel like you need to change. Um, for instance, and I said this last week, um, one of my counterfeit habits that I love um, is that I'm, I'm 38 years old. I am about 15 months from turning 40. And so the best, you know, habit or one of the better habits that I can get to is exercise. And so what I do is I play golf, which is not exercise, right? Because I don't even walk. Like I'm in a cart. I mean, I try to swing hard because why not, right? I feel like I'm going to hit it straight. Might as well hit it far. So <laughs> it's a bad thing that you do in golf. Anyways, right? That's a counterfeit habit. It makes me feel like I'm outside. It makes me feel like I'm being active. It makes me feel like I'm doing something, but it's not actually serving the purpose, but it serves enough of that purpose to where it kind of gets in the way. I've got another one for you, and some of you have this. Um, and if you're married, there's, the, there's a really good chance one of you in the marriage has this. We have this thing at our house, in our room, called my pile. Let me explain what that pile is, okay? Our, my pile is the clothes that, that I wear, it's like sin, right? It's not dirty enough to completely put away, but you don't want to mix it with everything else that's clean, right? And so it's just kind of like this in the middle. And you know what I'm saying. Like, you don't want to put it back in with the clean clothes because that's just going to contaminate the whole thing. You know, a little yeast works through the whole dough in Jesus' words. But at the same time, like, it doesn't need a bath yet, right? And so it's just kind of, it exists there. And so from time to time, um, we get tired of my clothes being, um, you know, scattered about. And by we get tired, I mean I don't get tired, but one of us gets tired, and reasonably so. Um, and so we just put my clothes on my side of the bed, on my thing, and it's like, look, the room is clean, right? And every once in a while, the pile grows too big for that side of the bed, which you think, that's a lot of clothes. I'm like, eh, there's a lot of clothes that aren't dirty enough yet, you know? So <clears throat> counterfeit habits, as much as we have them in normal life, the reality is, is that probably the place or one of the places they're most pre prevalent is in our spiritual life. 
in our spiritual life. And again, the problem is, is they're not always bad things. They're oftentimes good things, but they replace the best thing, which is not what's best for us. So an example of that, week one, William talked about this, did a masterful job. God speaks to us through his word. Hebrews 3, as the writer of Hebrews is about to launch into Psalm 95, he says, as the Spirit says, in other words, let me connect this dot for you. The scriptures that we read are breathed by the Spirit of God. Consequently, it is to us the voice of God because it's the word of God because the Spirit is speaking it to the writers and to us today and to our hearts. Now, as much as we know that, it's a lot easier to hear God's word from me than it is to read it for yourself. Oftentimes, because when I say it, you can avoid your sin in it. You don't have to directly interface with the spoken, spirit-inspired word of God. So we listen to podcasts of sermons, and we listen to podcasts of Christian content and people talking about the church and the church in the West, and it's all wonderful. And it's all good stuff. Let me just ask this. How's your reading? And what's been awesome is many of you have journeyed with us in this 22 days in the Word, and you started to develop a pattern. And I have you know, people, we invite everybody to send texts back, and I respond to the texts that are sent in. And as people are sending stuff in, one person just wrote and says, man, I didn't realize how dependent I was on sermons and podcasts and how much I just need to spend time in God's Word for myself. It's like, that's it. That's it. No, podcasts are not bad. Absolutely not. Sermons are not bad. Absolutely not. But some of us, we don't read our Bible because we come to church on Sunday, and you hear me talk about the Bible, so you don't feel like you need to. Not knowing that a relationship with God is a relationship. It takes communication. It takes regular communication. God speaks to us through his word. We speak to him through prayer. The more frequently we interact with one another, the better and the deeper and the wider our relationship gets. Prayer, we talked about last week. Prayer is, is fascinating because most of us, again, we treat prayer a lot like a vending machine. We just drop in the quarter. It drops down. We hit the button that we want God to do. And God, would you do this? Would you help me on this test? Would you give me this traffic light because I'm running late because I'm literally always running late? Right, God, I didn't really study enough, but I was doing ministry, you know? And so, God, could you help me, help me, help me, bless me, bless me, bless me? And what Jesus said is when, I, when you pray, man, just know that before you pray, God knows what you need before you ask it. Which we would say, well, well why do we pray? He would say, Exactly. It's a great question. When you pray, you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The tension in that verse that we have a holy, holy God, a God who is to be hallowed, a God who is in heaven, a God who, like Ecclesiastes says, that he is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. I love that. It's like this sense of like, okay, okay, maybe sometimes the best thing that we can do is just to be silent before God and acknowledge that he is holy and set apart, but he is also our father, which means he's intimate, he's close, and he's for you. And perhaps the purpose of prayer was to acknowledge that he's God and that I'm not, and so God, I want your will to be done and not mine. Well, does prayer work? Well, it depends on how you define work. If you continually judge a pencil by how well it swims, it's never going to work. So maybe the point of prayer was not to bend God to my will, but perhaps to bend my will to God's. And to just say, God, I am submitting to you whatever you want, wherever you want. I trust you. So today, we're going to talk about serving. Serving. And serving is something that kind of comes as almost an assumption with Christianity. But serving is something that Jesus did, and he just did, I mean, he just did such a masterful job. 
And as we've been, we've been going through this 22 days in the Word, reading the book of John, a chapter a day, yesterday was John chapter 13. And as I was reading John chapter 13 and thinking about the sermon, I thought, man, this, this is the text. This is the text that we need to talk about today because Jesus does something extraordinary. Now, I want to launch into the discussion with kind of a question that might seem a little bit off base, but this is the context that Jesus was in. What do you do when you're the most powerful person in the room? And some of you are like, dude, I have literally never had that problem in my life. It's okay. Here's what I know about you. Most of you, most of you, in fact, I would say to some degree, everybody in this room at some point in life, you will be the most powerful person in the room. You guys are smart. You guys are educated. You guys are go-getters. You're the 11 o'clock service, not the 915, so you're not quite as much of a go-getter as the 915 was, right? 815, or 8 o'clock service, it's going to be about 50-50, most important person in the room. But, but you guys are smart, educated people, and whether it's at, at the house, um, whether it's at work, whether it's in your fraternity, whether it's in your sorority, whether it's in your, um, uh, you know, the, the company retreat or the nonprofit that you are with, at some point in time, you will be the most powerful person in the room. And I think true service, true service is not defined when we are the lowly if we serve, but what we do when we have power, privilege, ability, and autonomy. And so Jesus has some extraordinarily insightful things to say. So John chapter 13. Jesus says, or in verse 1, John, as he's writing, narrates this. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So he's saying Jesus knows that this is his time. If you remember back, if you've been traveling through um, the 22 days in the Word with us through the book of John, you remember Jesus' first miracle was at um, a wedding when he turned water into wine. And, his, and he talk, talked to his mom. His mom said, you know, Jesus, we're out of wine. Why don't you make us some more? And he's like, Mom, it's not my time. She's like, eh, just do it. He's like, All right, you're my mom. I have to, right? So, but his thing was, it's not my time. Well, now he's saying, okay, this is my time. My time is here. He knows that the end is imminent. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the full. So during supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, listen to these qualifiers. Listen to these qualifiers. Right? He starts off by saying, okay, qualifier number one, the end is near. He knows that his life on earth is not much longer. In fact, I love how John goes through extraordinary detail. They say from John chapter 12 on, the last several hours of Jesus' life, if we had that much documentation over his three years of ministry, it would be enough to fill three Bibles worth of information. And so John goes through extraordinary detail documenting these last couple hours. And so he says, let me qualify and paint a context in a picture. Number one, Jesus knew that it was close. Number two, Jesus knew he was about to be betrayed. And here's what Jesus also knows, because he's going to say this in a couple of verses uh, to Peter, that all of the disciples are going to abandon him. Peter says, I'll never abandon you. And he's like, dude, you're not going to make it past the rooster crowing, and you're not going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times. One of those times, by the way, it's not, there's like great external existential pressure. One of them was basically like a middle school girl. And he's looking at him like, dude, you're a grown man, and you're going to deny me to a middle school girl. Don't come at me with all this like bombastic, I have all of this spiritual fervor. He's like, you're all going to deny me. In fact, one of you is going to be the catalyst for my crucifixion. And he's sitting at the table. 
And one last major qualifier. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, knowing that all things were under his power. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the rest of the story. But let me just, can, if I could just pause the narrative that you already know. And this was a totally blank slate. And we were to impose ourselves into this context. One of the things I love about John 11.35 that we read a couple days ago was how it says Jesus wept. Jesus, we, we forget in his divinity that he also was humanity. He felt, he thought, emotion, he wept. So he looks at this, and John said, they're saying, man, this context is wild. You've got, you've got this Jesus, the Savior, this God, who's at the end of his earthly life and ministry. And he's sitting around a bunch, a table of his closest followers who are also his greatest betrayers. And one who will, in fact, be the one who leads to the crucifixion. And he has all power, all control, all authority has been given to him, and he knows it. And I love how it, it like, reiterates. It's like, and he had come from God, and he was returning to God. Um, grew up in a military family, and uh, my dad had this saying that he got from his father. Uh, and it's a military saying, when, one, when you have orders from one place, but you're already, you already have orders from the next place that you're going to, right? And, you're, and, it's, and it's inevitable. It's called FIGMO. It's, it says, uh, forget it, I've got my orders. Forget it, I've got my orders. In other words, I don't care what's going to happen, I've got my orders. Now, full transparency, when my dad said it, it was not forget it. It was a different word, but we're in church, so I'm going to pray for your sinful souls, right? <clears throat> But it's almost like he's saying he could have gone out in a blaze of glory. He could have done anything he wanted to, full power, full authority, full autonomy. And he knew the people who he was with were about to betray him, and he could have done anything. And so he stands up from the table. So he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. What would you do in that context? I mean, think about it. Imagine knowing, imagine being at work, and you've got a room full of people who direct report to you, and then you know there's somebody who is about to betray you, say something to somebody above you, and that you're about to get terminated. And you know it and you can do anything you want to about it. So Jesus looks at him. Stands up. Takes off his outer garment. I feel like at this point they must have been like, oh, he's about to throw down. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'll hold my chain real quick. You know what I mean? Like he's doing all this. And he pours water into this basin. Wrapped a towel around it. Tied it around his waist poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, they didn't walk around with like, 
you know, Jordan 1s, lows, highs, mids, right? They didn't walk around in Nike Dunks. They didn't walk around in Vans. They didn't walk around in loafers, right? They walked around in sandals on dirt roads for the most part. And so their, their feet were disgusting. They were a society of order and rank. The lowest order and rank of the servants in the house, which were already a lower rank in the house, but the lowest rank of the servants in the house would be the person who would wash the feet because that activity was so gross and grotesque that only the lowest of the low would do it. So Jesus, all power, all authority, starts to wash his disciples' feet, starts to serve them. And this was not, by the way, a a blip on the radar of Jesus. This was Jesus' entire life. He said earlier, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Constantly, even when Jesus was being oppositional to the the religious leaders who opposed him, it wasn't because he didn't like them. It's because he wanted to glorify his Father, and he wanted people to know his heavenly Father. I mean, his entire life was serving. And so Jesus stands up. He begins to serve. And I want you to hear what Peter says. So he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I'm like, Peter, come on, dude. You've seen him do this for people already, you know? He's like, no, actually, Peter, you're good. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Now, Peter has some decent humility here. Basically, the heart of Peter is the heart to say, I don't deserve you to serve me. So verse 9, after Jesus says that I have to wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Which one would be like, Peter, dude, just chill out. Just like let him wash your feet, right? <clears throat> and it was funny because I, um, so every day when we've been sending out this text, this, you know, of the 22 days in the word, uh, it's been with a lot of days of some kind of a different slander or a different challenge. And yesterday the challenge was, where do you see yourself in the text? Where do you see yourself in the text? Where does this challenge you, help you, confront you, convict you, encourage you, all those types of things. This is where I see myself in the text. In fact, I think this is like the essence of who we are. Get this. Peter had the humility to say, Jesus, I am not worthy of you, yet in the very next breath, say, Jesus, let me tell you what to do. He had the humility to say, I don't deserve it. You are so much greater than me. You are so much bigger than me. You are so much better than me. You should not wash my feet. Jesus, I should be washing your feet. Now, Jesus, let me tell you what to do. I mean, how many of us, that's our relationship with God, right? It's like, God, I'm just so thankful that you love me in spite of my wickedness, my brokenness, my sinfulness. Now, Jesus, let me tell you what you should do in my life, my relationships. And even if we don't pray that, we just live that. There's a, um, a, a Scottish theologian, Marcus Don, or Dodds, who, uh, who says this. He says this so well. He says, Peter hum- Peter's humility is true enough to allow him to see the incongruity of Jesus washing his feet, yet not deep enough to make him conscious of the incongruity of, his, of him opposing and dictating to his master. 
Now, this is important because Jesus is actually going to bring this thought back around in a second. This is how the story continues. It's time. Thanks. <laughs> moving, moving right along. I get it. <clears throat> so Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, this was kind of this interesting thing that whenever um, the, this was, the Jewish audience, they got this, that whenever the high priest or whenever the priest of God would go into the, the temple of God, they would have a full ceremonial cleansing. But every time they went back into even though they had already been cleansed, every time they went back into it, they would wash their feet to make sure that as they were walking on holy grounds, that they were kind of in a sense of a posture before God, that they were clean before God. And so he says, he says, man, not like you've already been washed, but there's this continual process that we would call sanctification. But he says, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment to get your dress back and resumed his place, he said to them, in other words, this was the teaching moment. If, if, if Jesus was basically displaying a parable, he says, now let me explain this parable to you. Do you understand what I have done to you? If you call me teacher and Lord, you are right. For so I am. So if then, so in other words, let me give you an if then statement. If that's true, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is beautiful. He says, the heart of someone who serves is someone who serves because of the overwhelming realization of how they've been served. I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. I'm not asking you to do something different than me. What I'm asking you to do is simply have the spirit of me living, moving, breathing inside of you in a way that actually helps you to serve. And what's interesting about that is if you look through the Bible at every single person who the Bible paints in a positive slant as a leader, they don't have a sense of serving as something they do. They have a sense of serving as someone that they are. I mean, think about it. David. Abraham, Peter, Paul. I mean, these people, they serve with their entire lives. This was, this was the idea. That this is not supposed to be a part of who we are. This is supposed to be the essence of who we are as Jesus followers. This is why Philippians 2, Paul talks about this. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. In other words, don't let anything that you do be done for and through the lens of self. But in humility, consider other people better than yourself. You know what that means? Every room that we walk into should be a room that we walk into thinking everybody in this room is better than me. In the hyper-individualized culture we live in, this is wildly countercultural. Because in a world that basically says, like, do you remember the Aloe Black song that said, you can tell everybody, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am, yes, I am, yes, I am. I tell Lindsay that every morning. I'm like, Lindsay, you can tell everybody. Yeah, you can tell everybody. And she needs to hear it again. Yeah, you can tell everybody. Right? <clears throat> That's a joke, by the way. The reality is, is he said, no, no, no. Everybody you see, everybody you lock eyeball to eyeball with, I want you to consider as more important than yourself. If you are in here and you are skeptical of faith, if you saw Christians actually do this, you would be much less skeptical. I don't know you. I don't know your story. I don't know why you're skeptical. But I do know that historically Christians have painted the opposite picture 
of this. Servant, what, serving isn't an identity of who we are in the outer working of the realization. I have been served, so I serve. It hasn't been this since that, man, I come to the realization that I have been a rebellious sinner, that I have intentionally gone against God. I have sinned, and because of that, God and his glory and my sinfulness are fundamentally incompatible. That I could try to be a better person, I could try to be a more moral person, I could try to be a more selfless person, but the reality is, is I can't unsin myself. Jesus knew that, saw that. And in his holiness, there had to be a consequence for the infraction that had been caused. But he paid the price for that consequence. If I get caught speeding, there has to be a fine that's paid. But the realization of a Christian is not that if I work hard enough, I can pay this fine. It's that this is a fine through which I can never pay and I was never supposed to. That the entire sense of morality in the law in the Old Testament was simply to bring me to the awareness that I can't. And that I need a Savior. Not be better, be better, be better, be better, be better. Don't ever use the acronym FIGMA on stage because that's, you know, heretical. Isn't it true? That the people who serve are a people who realize the depth to which they have been served. And if you saw people, if you're skeptical, if you saw people who lived that, I mean genuinely lived it, like this was who they were, I have seen it shift in people's hearts and minds. You want to know why? Because for the first time, you saw somebody or you would see somebody who actually lived like they believe. Let me give you my counterfeit habits to serving real quick. I think this is important. I think we all know this, but I think this is why we, we put the good thing and not the best thing. I got three. These are not so the Bible says, this is so Ben says, because so Ben has experienced in his own heart and life. So counterfeits to serving. Number one, event-based serving. Event-based serving. Event-based serving is defined by I go to a place at a time or I do a thing and I serve because that's what's expected of me and because I know I should and I ought to. I am an event-based server. I go to Project Tallahassee and I serve. I go to the Hope Program and I serve. I go to church on Sunday morning and I serve. And event-based serving is good. Event-based serving for us, one, it, there's a sense of strategic impact that happens, but two, beyond that, there's a sense that like we're going to learn together what it looks like to serve. This is a doorway into what life could and should be like, not the finish line and say, whew. I served. Look at me. I'm so happy with me. I feel so good about me because I did something for somebody else. This is like the start of it. In fact, let me just say this. I said this in the first service, and I think I articulated this clearly, but maybe not. Whatever. I don't care if we ever serve as a church. I don't care if we ever serve the community as a church, like as the institution. And that's not because I don't care about the community. I deeply care about the community. But the reason I don't care if we ever serve as a church is because what we are should be what we do. And so what we should do should be the natural outer working of who we are, not trying to fool ourselves and say that's who we are because I did it once. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with religion. Here's the problem with church is that we say it's about the individual, not the institution. But we get mad at the institution when we aren't doing what we should do individually. Think about that. Essentially what we're saying is, man, I'm not going to do it, but I'm mad that nobody's doing it. Like, 
Here's why I hate pushing, like, oh, we should serve, we should serve, and here's the, here's the thing to sign. Yeah, of course you can sign up the Connect Desk, whatever. But, but here's, why, here's why I'm passionate about this. Because if this is who we are, it is what we'll do. So in a sense, I deeply care if we serve as the institution of the church. But not because the institution decided to, because the individuals, it was their identity. And so when we collectively came together, we served together. And here's all I'm saying. If, if, if we can't serve when we are together, to think that we can serve or we can't serve when it's safe in here, but we're going to do it when it's not safe out there or less safe out there, I have my doubts. That's it. You might do it. That's awesome. I just have my doubts. I hope you prove me wrong. But what if this was our identity? What if this is who we were? What if this is who we are? So there's event-based This is kind of the cousin of event-based, but this is attention-based, attention-based serving. I serve when people see me serve. I serve when people acknowledge that I serve. I serve when people see and acknowledge what I've done. Here's, here's just a quick litmus test for this. For those of you who do serve, and we're very thankful that you do, if no one ever acknowledged that you serve, if no one ever said thank you for you serving, if you, there was never attention from you serving, would you serve any less? You see, we serve not because of the praise of the people or the attention of the people that we serve. We serve because we've been served. And when I serve you, it glorifies him. And that's it. Another ancillary benefits to it, of course. Of course there are. Is it nice when somebody says, that was awesome? Of course. Is it nice when, when you know, someone says, man, I saw those ways you serve, and let me tell you how it changed someone's life or changed someone's eternity? Of course. But too many of us, man, we serve because of the attention that we get, and we stop getting the attention, we stop serving, and the real functional problem with that is today's service, and, and especially, I mean, you guys know this, whether you've ever articulated this or not, today's um, serving is tomorrow's expectation. People are so thankful the first day, but they expect it the next Today's experience becomes tomorrow's expectation. And as the attention wanes, oftentimes so does our sense of serving. So this is the last one. This is one I think is particularly potent for us. In our current day and age, um, bias-based serving. We just like to serve people who are like us and people who agree with us. We like to serve people who are like us and people who agree with us, people who are on our same thought plane, whether it's what you say, whether it's what you do, whether it's how you look, whether it's what you wear, whether it's what you make, whether it's what you believe, whether it's what you believe religiously, whether it's what you believe with your sexuality, whether it's whatever you believe in terms of your you know, political thoughts and ideologies. And let me just tell you why we like to do that. Because we really hate to live in the tension of saying, how do I serve someone with whom I disagree? And let me just tell you this. I have zero intention on solving that internal discord. I'll just say this. Aren't you so glad that didn't stop Jesus? Aren't you so glad Jesus didn't see the people around him at the table say, yep, <clears throat> they're all going to desert me. Yep, they're going to betray me. Not dying for you today. And what if maybe Jesus already said this? As he gave the Sermon on the Mount to his close disciples, his close followers, when he said, if you just love people who love you, how are you any different than anybody else in the world? 
When I tell you, love your, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Man, what if that act of love of our enemy was the defining characteristic of Christians? And here's what I really want to spend the last minute or two just pushing. That this, for the Christian, is not a suggestion. Listen to how Jesus finishes this. Verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. To you. Truly, truly. In other words, pay attention because this is important. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Let me break that down into our language, out of Jesus' language. When we decide that we are too good to serve the person next to us, across from us, whether that's across the street, whether that's across the aisle, whether that's across the dining room, when we decide that we are too good to serve that person, we are also saying we're better than Jesus. Like functionally and fundamentally. Remember what Peter said? I don't deserve you. Now let me tell you what to do. We're saying, I don't deserve you, but I'm not going to serve you. We're saying, okay, Jesus, you are master, are someone who did this for us, but Jesus, <laughs> I'm just a little too important to do that for somebody else. So he says, and if you don't, if you don't, if you don't, the fundamental posture that we are taking when we refuse to serve and be a group of people who serve because of the overwhelming realization of God's love for us and how he served for us, whether it's we refuse to serve because we think we're too important, because we're not getting enough attention, because it wasn't at an event, because of whatever the thing was that made us not serve, when we do that, we just basically say, Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness, and I got it from here. Thank you for serving me, but I'm a little bit too good to do that. Now, come on. Isn't this, isn't this the type of person you want to be anyways? Isn't this the type of person that you know deep down is actually the person who honors God with their life? Like, what if, what if, what if? I'm just, just throwing this out there. I was saying I was going to only do this at the 8 o'clock show because I had a little more time, but hey, what, what the heck? What if like in Ephesians 5 where it says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and, and wives submit to your husbands. You want to know why that's such a difficult thing for us to swallow? It's because we are terrible at serving our wives' husbands. Think about that. What that basically says is husbands, do everything you can to sacrifice, suffer, die to yourself for your wife. Like every single impasse, you say, you first, you first, you first, you first, you first. And it's not like a, so wives submit to your husband, so yeah, give me a sandwich. It's like, no, I will get you all of the sandwiches in the history of sandwich because it's my job to love you. It's my job to serve you. And the ultimate form of submission, one, it's a race to the bottom because it says submit to one another, overarching idea and principle. But number two, it's this reality that there's two couples at the restaurant and they're saying, no, you go in the door first. 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 No, the door first. Eventually, the wife lets the husband put her first. That's biblical marriage. 
We're like, no, it should be this sense. And, and, and to be fair, it's because guys like me in, in positions like mine have not taken the time to say, fellas, serve. Girls, if you're dating a guy, if, he, if you don't picture him doing that while you're dating, he will not do that when you're married. Don't count on a miracle for your marriage to survive. That was a giggle. I liked it. I thought it was clever, too, to be honest. I just thought of it. Holy Spirit, appreciate it. So here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. Man, what if this was who we are? And I really want it to be. We will constantly struggle against our flesh that wants to prop ourselves up. But what if every impasse we just said, help me to serve today? And again, we don't do this because we have to. We don't do this because we ought to. We do this because we get to. Because we realize what God has done for us. And it's this overwhelming realization of God's love for me. That he died for me. That he forgave me. In light of the fact that I was utterly, wretchedly rebellious and sinful. And I would continue to sin. That he forgave me. He served me. And now his spirit lives inside of me. The spirit that gave everything for a rebellious sinner like me. I don't know what your counterfeit habit to serving is. But man, I'm just imagining what God could do in a city, in a state, in a world. For the group just this size, who decided? Serving is not something I do. It's who I am. Because the spirit of the sovereign Lord who served me is upon me. And he has called me, compelled me, and motivated me. That my identity is a servant. So we're going to end our service today with communion. And the reason is, is because that was the ultimate. That was the ultimate physical representation of the ultimate love and service to the world. When Jesus gathered his closest disciples, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. So, so often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering, knowing, acknowledging, seeing that we serve because we have been served. And I just pray that the love of God washes over you. And let me just say this one last thing, is that if you're in here and you're kind of skeptical of faith, Jesus Christianity, we would invite you, man, to participate, to listen to the songs, all this kind of stuff, but don't feel, but, but, but not in communion. And the only reason is it's not because we don't want you to, it's because of the fact that we, it feels improper to ask you to. And by that I mean we wouldn't say, oh, you're not really sure if you believe in God or not? Get baptized, right? So this is the sign of our faith, and we would just say, man, take today and just think and pray, how would life be different for you if you knew Christians who did this? And I'm praying that God removes the counterfeit habits and that we are a servant-hearted people, consistently saying you first. Let's pray together. Jesus, I know that I, as much as anybody else, struggle with this. But I pray that as we continually spend time with you, as we continually look to you, as we know that you have already forgiven us, but I pray that you would continually change us 
transform us to being more like you. A God who did not just sit back in eternity, but a God who actively came, actively loved, actively served. Those who professed to be friends but would really be betrayers, you served. Those who were the rebellious breed that would later come to know you, you served. Those who were continually in opposition to you, you served through glorifying your Father, not the attention of people. God, I pray as we experience your love, you would change our hearts and that we would be the same. It wouldn't be for the event. It wouldn't be for the attention. It wouldn't be for the similarities that we have. But that your heart would become ours. As we take communion together, as people come up and not as rows come up, but as individuals come up as their heart is prepared, that you would give us a new heart. From the inside out, you would change us to be servants of yours. That we would serve because of the overwhelming realization of how we have been served. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.